Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Trium Connects, a new podcast for the Trium community. Competition is controversial. It kills some jobs, it kills some businesses, it creates others. It would be uh, very misleading to write a book arguing competition is good while ignoring what it does in practice. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Triumph Connects. In this episode, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Thomas Philippon. At the very end of 2019, Thomas' latest book was published, entitled The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets. The book starts with a series of observations that are quite striking. Thomas argues that if you look at the data over the last 20 years, the United States markets have become more and more consolidated, In industry after industry, there is less and less competition. Prices have gone up and quality of service has gone down. On the other hand, in Europe, which has traditionally been seen as a non-competitive environment or non-competitive market, we have seen prices go down in industry after industry and service quality go up. So that's the setup. Free markets, the country of free markets that we think of as free markets as the United States, has less and less free markets and more and more environments that are dominated by the kind of twin evils of oligopoly and oligarchy. While in Europe, we see more and more competition and better and better services and prices for the consumer. The array of data that he presents and analysis on these questions seems to me to be unassailable. The data is there. It, it, it simply is a fact that this is the pattern across these two different polities. What's very interesting, however, is the next part, the next question. The obvious question, really, is why has this happened? What is happening? So the question of what happened is pretty, pretty clear. How it happened and why it happened, those are the really interesting parts of the book, and it's what we talk about in this episode. So in a sense, the book reads very much like a detective story. The first part of the book lays out the kind of pattern of observations, if you will, the crime. This is what we see. This is what's happened. The second part is all about how do we explain this? What happened? And then he goes through several possible kind of suspects for this crime. And his conclusion, his finding, well, you'll either have to read his book or listen to what's coming next. So you may be asking yourself, why should we listen to what Thomas has to say? Well, in addition to being extremely data-driven, the book has made a very big impact on the continuing debate that's going on in this field about what's happening in the U.S. market versus the EU market. And such kind of liberal icons as the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal have given the book glowing reviews. And just a quote from the Wall Street Journal, quote, a fascinating case study of rising corporate concentration and why this reflects not just impersonal economic forces, but political choices. Philippon concludes competition has indeed declined to the detriment of consumers. Where the U.S. was once the world's teacher, it may be time to be the pupil. In addition to these peer reviews, you should also know that Thomas is the Max Hind Professor of Finance at New York University Stern School of Business, And in 2014, was named one of the top 25 economists in the world, under 45 by the IMF. In addition to many other awards, he has practitioner experience at the highest levels. He is previously the advisor, an advisor to the New York Federal Reserve Bank. And he's been a member of the French Prudential Regulatory Authority from 2014 to 19. And he was the senior economic advisor to the French finance minister in 2012 to 2013. So not only does Thomas have all of the academic rigor and weight behind him, he has massive amount of experience as a practitioner that gives extra weight to what he has to say. I found our conversation about his book really fascinating. Um, I learned a lot and I hope the same will be true for you. So without further ado... Here is my conversation with Thomas Philippon. Thomas Philippon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I want to say that I, I'm a great fan of your new book. And what I really liked about it is 
I love this idea of being a mythbuster. You look at evidence and you know, we kind of all hold these truths, some truths to be self-evident, but the book is a beautiful example of, of how, if you look at the evidence, actually a lot of these deeply held beliefs turn out to be not so true. It's also, I mean, one of the things I do is teach methodology and it's a absolutely wonderful case study for how you use data to explore kind of empirical and policy relevant questions. So I plan on using it uh, in courses not related to political economy or economy per se, but just to say, look, this is, a, this is a way that you should do it. This is the way that you can be humble in what the data say without torturing them too badly, uh, but at the same time make really powerful conclusions that are all the more interesting and persuasive because they're backed up by the data. So uh, I wanted to say just I really enjoyed the book and thank you very much for, for writing it. Thank you. That was, I'm, I'm glad because that's pretty much what I try to do in the, in the book, yes. It's like giving the keys of the house to the reader. Right. <laughs> True. Yeah. Like then, and it is, the best I can do is put the, the work is, is to you know, get the data, gather it, clean it, and make it in, present it in a way that people can understand. And then at, at the end of the day, people make up their mind. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so many, I think we'd be so much better off in so many of our policy arguments if we went back and said, well, actually, what do we know empirically to be true? And then let's base our policy recommendations on that. Or what do we empirically think that we know that probably is true? Something like that. So yeah, that's a <laughs> long one. It's a long one. Yeah. Um, let's not get into epistemology, I suppose. But I'd like to, if, if it's okay with you, kind of divide our conversation into three parts. And I think that the briefest of it is going to be kind of maybe an explanation of what you see has happened to the nature of competitive markets in the US and the EU over the 20 years. And this is the great reversal referred to in the book's title. And then move on kind of onto how this happened. And then I hope to spend most of the time on finally on why this, why this switch happened. Um, and it seems to me that in many ways, this to me is the most interesting and, and of course the most difficult to answer. Um, and as far as on what happened, I mean, I suppose there could be arguments on the margins on some of the evidence or methodology, but overall the findings I think are super persuasive. And the conclusion, yeah, yeah go ahead. No, I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the title comes from the, my experience here in the US over the past 20 years. The thing that I, it's a bit shameful to some extent is that I didn't realize what was happening in real time. Um, because now it's just so obvious when you look at it, but that somehow I missed it. So when I came, it was 1999 when I came to the US to do my PhD at MIT. You know, coming from Europe, I actually came from London at that time, I had been in, at the London School of Economics for one year. Before in Paris, I had lived in Germany. You know, I knew pretty well the south of Europe as well. So. I had a good sense of, you know, how Europe looked like, and I arrived in the U.S. And um, like many things were different, but strikingly, a few key items that you care about when you're a student were much cheaper in the U.S. And that had mostly to do with travel and communication. That is the one that struck me at the time. So it was a lot cheaper to get a laptop, get an internet connection, walk on the internet, um, uh, soon enough, you know, the smartphone started to appear. It was way cheaper to get a cell phone plan in the U.S. Um, and uh, as a student, I could also fly to conferences, which is something I would never have done in Europe. I would go to conferences, but always like would drive, take the train or take the bus. Yeah. Um, but airline tickets were much cheaper in the U.S. So I could actually fly to conferences. I could fly to Chicago to listen to some great uh, talks about economics. I was like, well, that's interesting. Because of course, that's the opposite of what economics predicts. Because the US is richer than Europe by about 20% on a per capita basis. So you would expect, because of what we call the samuelson balassa effect, you know, uh, for the same reason haircuts are more expensive in New York than in Jakarta, uh, you know, like you would expect uh, goods and services to be more expensive in the, in the US because it's richer. Yeah. So wages are higher. And it was not true. Uh, it was true in some cases, but it was not true uh, in, in these industries. Um, so I took it for granted that that's the way it is. You know, the U.S. has just more proactive competition policy. Firms are always fighting how to get customers. And at the end of the day, the winner is the, the consumer. You know, 
when 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 firms fight to get your um, attention either as a consumer or as a producer then you know you're in good shape right mm. you're gonna get a good deal so that's and i took it for granted that this is the way it was and um, conversely in europe it was there was not this tradition of pushing for competition and free market and i also took it for granted that that's the way things were and what's striking is the fact that over the past 20 years these two things are completely flipped and they don't the thing that's striking and again, that's it's a bit shameful that it took me so much time to figure out, is they haven't switched by a small margin in this market. They've switched by 50%. Like yeah, literally yeah. today in Paris, uh, you when France is extremely competitive for telecom now. So it's really, even by European standard, it's cheap. But my, you know, all of my friends, my parents, my family, they pay a third of what I pay for better quality services in all dimensions, yeah. both for like broadband access at home, for uh, cell phone plans, just amazing. So they, you know, we went from being say 30% cheaper to be uh, more expensive to being like 50 or 60% cheaper. I mean, that's just a massive change in the price. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not a small industry, right? The telecom business is a big industry. So that was like amazing. Um, and it all happened through uh, competition policy going different routes in the US and in Europe. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because I had, I had a very similar experience, but in the reverse way. So in 1995, I moved from the US to the UK and have been here since. Mm -hmm. And so when I first came, I was like, my God, these things are expensive and they aren't very good. And, you know, I, I, I yeah. thought and I went to the bank and tried to open a current account. You know, retail banking was uh, kind of not very good. It was very expensive and there was, you know, and now when I go back to the States to visit my mother and things like this, it's just the reverse of your experience. I go, my God, this is horrible service. It's really yeah. expensive yeah. and there doesn't seem to be any competition. So, uh, you know, I'll say to my mother, you know, why don't you switch provider? And she goes, well, what provider should I switch to? You, yeah, you show me. I have the choice between Comcast 1 and Comcast 2. Yeah, exactly. And Comcast 3, you know, <laughs> so that's so, a great choice. So, did yeah, you, so, mean, so that's the starting point for the book. Now, of course, uh, you know, the telecom is very salient because uh, people are, tend to be a bit more aware of what they pay every month. So it's, and it's relatively easier to compare, although not always trivial. Um, so it's like a pretty striking example. Now, it's not true for every industry. Some industries have remained very competitive in, uh, in the US and some have remained not very competitive in Europe. But if you look at the broad landscape, on average, I think that um, industries have become, I mean, let's put it that way. There's something that's absolutely obvious, which is markets have become way more competitive in Europe in an absolute basis. Like European consumers get a way better deal today than 20 years ago. That is absolutely obvious. This is not even room for disagreement there. It's also become relatively more competitive than the US on a relative basis. Europe used to be much less competitive. Now that gap has closed for sure. Uh, where the controversy starts is when you want to think about whether there are some places where Europe has overtaken the US, like in the telecom industry, and which ones, that's more complicated. Uh, and then the other one that's more controversial, although I don't think it is actually, but the Americans are so stuck uh, in their mind on this one that they I think the U.S. is less competitive than it used to be on an absolute level as well. Um, but by how much is more controversial? Um, so that's the, the book then is about trying to figure out, okay, if you look at all the industries and then you use a range of indicators, what can you say about the, the average evolution of these industries? Um, and I think that my, at the end of the day, my conclusion is that the consumers in the U.S. are taxed to the tune of 7 to 10% per year of their disposable income because of lack of competition. So prices are about 7 or 10% too high here compared so to where they used to be. You argue that part of the reason is this idea of market concentration. And you, you talk about good and bad market concentration. I think you say it's a bit like cholesterol, right? You can have good and bad yeah. cholesterol. Can you tell us a bit about what you mean by this good and bad market concentration and how it relates to the overall levels of competition? Yeah, so the thing that's tricky in a book like that is, is to translate you know, academic discussions that usually are based on mathematical models into things people can relate to. So this, this was my attempt to translate some of the discussion in academia where we don't think of concentration as being like a, a prime factor. We think of it as more like an outcome. So you cannot say 
concentration is good or bad because concentration itself is the result of a bunch of stuff. So oftentimes it's used as a proxy to think about how competitive the market is. Um, but the problem is it can be a bad proxy because there are some cases where concentration is either benign or even a sign of competition actually. So that's why I was trying to explain that. And uh, so concentration happens mechanically when the leading firms who you know, by definition, they already have high market shares, get even better. Okay, so they say they were like 10% better than the rest, now they become 15% better than the rest. Well, then they're gonna increase their market share. So what you're gonna see is higher concentration mechanically. But it's of the good type because the reason underlying it is that these leading firms just got better. So you shouldn't complain about that, you know? Um, and in fact, usually when that happens, it comes together with um, lower prices for consumers, uh, higher productivity, and uh, overall, you know, a good outcome. Now, if you push it to the extreme, it can still create issues down the road. And we can talk about that in the case of Apple or Amazon later. But at least the process is healthy, you know. Um, and Walmart, to me, is the example I used in the book to, to describe that. Um, you know, because if you look at the retail sector, it became more competitive every year, more productive every year. Uh, so that's just right away there. That's disposable income for, for families that are being created. Yeah, let me pick up on that example because I, I think it's interesting. One of, the, one of the things that you always have to make a decision on as an author, as an analyst, or doing research is kind of what to include in the analysis and what not to, you know, what are you yep. going to look at what impact or not. And, and you write in the book about Walmart, you know, you say the growth of Walmart provides us with an example of efficient concentration. Its profits margins remain stable or even decline and most important prices go up. Oh, sorry, go down. Uh, consumers benefit from Walmart's expansion. It is, a f it is fair to debate and challenge Walmart's labor and management practices, but there remains little doubt that Walmart has been good for US consumers. Yep. The question I have is, it's a more general question, but I, maybe it, it can be elucidated through the discussion of this particular case. Again, about what to include and not. So if you look at Walmart and the labor effects and the social capital effects, for example, we leave these kind of out of the analysis and we say that it's good for the consumer. So I grew up, uh, just to give you some background, I grew up in a little town in Nebraska. And I saw a uh, little town after little town kind of decimated by the opening of Walmarts. So the Walmart would open outside of town and then the social capital in these small towns were lost and a kind of managerial SME ownership class was replaced by kind of low paying jobs and, and assistant manager positions at the Walmart. Now, it seems like sometimes when we tell people that these now dead small towns with these super Walmart sitting outside them, they're better off now as consumers. I think sometimes, and, and this is what I really like to get your opinion on, because I think sometimes people then, if they're sitting in those towns, they start to lose faith in, in what experts are saying, because it's kind of like 2016 election again, and Clinton saying, you know, America's better than it's ever been. Um, can and should, do you think economic theory avoid, can, can it avoid these kind of, selections about what you you look at as kind of the dependent variable and do you think that sometimes it leads to these kind of an overall rejection to experts if it doesn't fit with people's feeling about how they see or what they feel like happening is happening to their to their world so first of all just about walmart itself the reason i chose the example is precisely because it was controversial you see, I, I don't, there is no point writing a book saying that uh, we like uh, motherhood and apple pie because who <laughs> cares, you know? Yeah. So I wanted, an I wanted an example of competition that was big first, you know, in the sense of uh, something that you could measure easily in the data. And, um, and also that, was, that, would, that would also be somewhat controversial because competition is controversial. It, it kills some jobs, it kills some businesses, it creates others. Hmm. So uh, it would be uh, very misleading to write a book arguing competition is good while ignoring what it does in practice, which is, yeah, it, some people lose, some people win. The thing we, that we believe strongly is that <clears throat> at the end of the day, more people lose than win. Um, so that's kind of the reason why I wanted the Walmart example. Um, that's one thing. 
The second thing is uh, to say about the, the, the fact that some, some places get, get uh, hurt. That actually is very tricky. I mean, people have looked at that in great details. And most of the time, it's very hard to argue that this is because of Walmart. You know, these things were happening in any way. Okay. So there is definitely, I mean, if you own a small retail store in a Walmart open next door, you're going to have trouble. That's no question about that. But yeah. then everybody else is going to pay less for their groceries. Um, and uh, you're going to have much more varieties of things you can buy. So you have to balance all of these things. Um, having a big store next door is also something that is attractive for some of the people who want to move in. So it's a mix, you know, it's a mixed bag. I think the best estimates I've seen is like overall the, the impact is, um, is positive. And there's also, you know, like it's the whole debate about the Luddites to some extent hmm. at some point. Sure. Uh, yeah. It's, Sure. Like if, you know, the, if we don't have machines, uh, you know, the, uh, we would save some jobs in the short term, but we will also still be dot poor. So that's the usual trade-off. But I think that's why I chose that example, because at the very least, you, you can argue that prices went down and therefore consumers were better off. And so, so that was kind of the minimum I wanted to see. And yeah. to contrast with the telecom case. Yeah, yeah. Where people, people get this ripped off. Like there's no, there's no redeeming feature. There's nothing, re, there's no redeeming feature of the getting ripped off by your cell phone provider. Or your, you just literally, you lose money. You have less money to buy toys for, for your kids. That's yeah. what it means in real terms. The, the only competitor I can think of is maybe uh, domestic U.S. travel, uh, air travel. But um, I only raised raise the Walmart example because I think it's kind of a, it's an interesting case because of the dy dynamism of the, of the case. So you argue that Walmart, I guess if we, if we use your argument, Walmart would have been in a position once it eliminated all these other small shops that it could have started extracting rents because it, it essentially could kill competition through its economies of scale. And you yeah, say that- I think they, people, exactly, people made that argument in the early 2000s, that they, yeah. they were getting worried that Walmart was getting too big. But then Amazon came along. Yeah, which is exactly, and that's, that's the third reason I like the Walmart example, yeah. because it gives you the way capitalism is supposed to work, which is by the time, the, uh, by the time you're worried about the dominant firm becoming too dominant, then another one shows up uh, and solves the problem by creating new competition and the regulators don't have to do much. So that's, that's the way capitalism is supposed to work. And, um, and again, I, I like that example because then I want to contrast with what we see in some other industries where we don't yeah. see competition coming. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, I guess the question is, does it reach a point of consolidation? Is, so is Apple the end of the line? Or, or as you say, as a cyclical kind of situation, do we get more consolidation and then a, something bigger comes along and whether we, we, get, we reach the end of the road where it's so consolidated that they can protect themselves? But I think overall, I mean, I, I, I love the conclusion. You've already mentioned this kind of 7%. Prices are kind of 7% too high in the U.S. And you, and you calculate it's about $300 per household, which is about 600 billion, uh, sorry, a month yeah. per month, and about 600 billion annual impact on the economy. That's only the direct impact of prices. But if you, if you take into account the, the thing that's important when you do the counterfactual, of what would happen if we brought back competition? Then you have to take into account all the indirect benefits through higher wages, higher investment. And then yeah, if could you put you, them together, it's more like a trillion dollar actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you say, I think it's 1.25 trillion increase in, in labor income if we could go back to 2000. Could you kind of spell out the steps of that argument? For me, it was really clear, 600 billion annual impact in higher prices. But maybe you can clear, make clearer for our listeners exactly how do we get from there to this kind of multiplier effect in labor income, et cetera. Yeah, well, because when you, uh, when you lower prices, people consume more. So more gets produced. So the labor market tightens. You have more employment. Uh, in response to that, firms are going to have to invest more to scale up some of their capacity. Um, and that's going to lead to even higher income and production. Um, so the key is that if one firm makes an extra investment, becomes more productive then it's going to generate more production, more income. Now that income is going to be spent on all the other firms in the economy. Right. And so you have this multiplier effect where the key in, the key in macroeconomics is that somebody, um, somebody's income is somebody else's uh, demand, if you want, of consumption. 
Yeah. So if you earn more, you're going to spend more. If, if, if there's a boom in uh, like who benefits the most from, I don't know, let's take uh, something very cyclical, like the fracking boom in Texas. Well, hairdresser did amazingly well, amazingly well. Yeah. Okay. That's clearly not because they got they themselves became more productive because there was a higher demand for their service. So that's the kind of loop in the economy. And uh, so when you take that into account, it goes through the labor market and through uh, capital formation. Then uh, lower prices would uh, lead to about a trillion dollar extra of private GDP. But on top of it, because markets would be more competitive, the people who earn dividends from large companies would earn fewer dividends, but the people who earn labor income would earn higher wages. So you would have this extra 250 billion trans transfer payment, if you want, or reduction in uh, inequality between capital and labor, and labor would benefit. So the total increase in labor income would be uh, a trillion and a quarter. So that's significant. Yeah, and part of this, I suppose, would be that it would be easier to shift to other employers, right? It'd be easier to move move jobs if you have more competitors in the market. So right now, it I mean, seems that's, to be I think so. I mean, I think like at the end of the, day, the best unemployment insurance is a tight labor market. Because yeah. if your employer is a pain in the neck, you tell them to go hang themselves and you work for another firm. Yeah. That the fact that you can tell your employer that you quit because you're not happy with whatever, the, the, either your wage or your work conditions or the safety of your job or the benefits, the fact that you have the option to quit and go work somewhere else, I think that's the ultimate, that's the best protection that uh, workers can, can get for sure. And the, and the huge increase in anti-compete clauses that make people not be able to work in the same industry if they leave uh, slows that yep. uh, labor tightening yep. even down further. Yep. So as I said, I think it's pretty convincing case that you make about this switch that happened, this reversal with the US the markets becoming less competitive, the EU becoming more competitive. And again, the argument about how this happened in the book is, again, I find super convincing, again, highly data-driven about how this happened. Essentially, it's kind of, you treat it as a natural quasi-experimental design, and there's some sort of kind of interrupted time series analysis that something happened kind of around 2000, and then we get this divergent of paths across the two. Europe gets a better and stronger, more independent regulator and competition policy, which has led to more competitive markets the last 20 years. And then something happened in the US around 2000, and you saw the US regulatory environment through time captured by corporate lobbying and leading to less kind of antitrust enforcement, et cetera. And to explain what happened in the States, you make reference to Manzer Olson's logic of kind of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about what that argument is and how it relates to this case in particular? Yeah, so to be perfectly honest, I think I have a pretty complete theory of the EU. Like I know what happened, I know when it happened, and I know why it happened. I don't feel like I have a complete understanding of, of the US in the same way. I think I more or less know what happened. I think I more or less understand when, but I don't have a full understanding of why. Um, it's a lot more complicated in the U.S. There is no simple date or key um, mechanism you can point to. So it's a little bit in that sense. Um, there's still work to be done for, for to understand what was going on in the U.S. But the broad picture for the the reason I think Olson is very relevant is because there is a sense in which competition is a public good of the most. Uh, at the same time, you think it's kind of strong or something that should be like a, a key feature of a market economy. But we tend to take it for granted. But actually, if you think about it carefully, you realize it's actually much more fragile than you think. Because it has the key feature of fragile public goods, which is the small benefits to many people and a big cost to a few. So, you know, like as consumers, if prices are a few percent lower, I mean, take my point estimate, say 7%. It's still not, I mean, that means, you know, instead of paying 100, you should be paying 93. Um, like, you know, on everyday basis, it's going to be a relatively small difference. I mean, like seven cents on the dollar. It's not like mind blowing as a number. Of course, at the end of the day, that means that, you know, if you have a few, if you have three or $500 left in your pocket at the end of uh, each month to buy stuff that you actually like for your kids or for, for your friends, that's a big difference. But it's a still on a day by day basis, it's a small amount. And on the other hand, 
the cost of competition for the firms who are in competitive industry or the benefit from them of reducing competition can be very huge. Mm. Like you, the profit margins of the profit margins of firms who manage to kill competition are huge. So the, the benefits are very can be very concentrated. So every industry is going to have a strong incentive to try to protect its strengths and decrease competition by lobbying, by doing all the things that they do. Um, and uh, it's going to be relatively easier for them to coordinate because, you know, if, if they lobby at, at the level of the industry, then they just need to agree among themselves to set up a, a lobbying effort in, in Washington. Um, even if you do it by themselves at one firm at the local level, you know, it's like it's relatively easy to decide and do it. While the consumers, they don't have any natural way to just coordinate and, and you know, decide altogether. Then there is no forum for all consumers to meet. Um, so that is very asymmetric. Um, you know, equilibrium means that competition is going to be fragile because the consumers are, don't have an incentive individually to do much about it. They take it for granted. While yeah, whatever, whatever who, costs they have in, in investing is going to overwhelm whatever savings they would have. Yeah, I mean, that's why we have things like class action. And yeah. but we see that extremely imperfect. They can be also perverted by lawyers. So yeah, there is no obvious, simple solution. Do you know work by uh, John Roche? He, he wrote uh, back in the day a book called uh, Demosclerosis, which he says that in, in essence, if you have a government like the US that has loads of different points of access for lobbyists, mm -hmm. um, that this logic of Olson, he builds on the logic of Olson saying these concentrated benefits will mean it will be worth it for people to try to infiltrate as many of these uh, spots as possible, these, these, uh, these uh, openings for uh, influence, where any single consumer, as you said, will, make, will be the cost of doing something will be higher than the cost of the potential savings, so they won't do anything. And yep. he, he went on to write a book called Government's End, Why Washington Stopped Working. And I just didn't know, because it's a very similar argument, and, and I thought you might find it interesting. It's a book that uh, was insightful. It he wrote it in the 80s, I believe. I, I don't have the date in front of me, but it makes the same argument. And I, I guess that kind of turns us to why it didn't happen sooner. So what-, what Yeah, I mean, why is the U- I mean, the, the, the thing is, the key thing that's missing in all of this to me is uh, the time dimension, which is, you know, why is it that the U.S., you know, as a country, typically we think of it as a strong regulators, free market. That was definitely true since uh, the Teddy Roosevelt time mm. and the trust busters of the late 19th, sorry, 20th century, uh, the birth of the antitrust uh, laws in the U.S., the Sherman Act and all of that. That's, that was like a big deal. Um, it, it was born in the U.S., it survived in the U.S. And then more than that, actually, I think it was like a gospel and it, it spread around the world. Like, you know, the idea that free markets are good for everybody most of the time, that idea is British and American to a large extent and was promoted around the world. And I think it's mostly right in most cases. Mm. Um, so then, then the question is, whether that, that would not explain why the U.S. would change. You know, yeah. what, what would trigger that change? Um, so I think the lo logic of the failure of collective action is useful as a guiding principle to think about what something like that could happen, but it doesn't tell you why it happened in some cases and, and not in others or some exactly. time periods in history, not in others. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing that's the tricky part. That's the tricky part. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's turn to the EU for a second and then we'll turn back to the U S because I, again, I think that that's the harder thing to try to figure out. I, and once again, I found your argument of what happened in the EU really convincing. And you, you use a game theoretic analysis to show why each member country would be in favor of a really strong independent regulator. I wonder if you could just go through that argument for us. Why would the regulators in each of these independent countries within the EU decide to give up so much power to the central part? And once they decide to give up the power, why would they be so uh, why would they? Why would they cut off kind of any avenues of influence on these regulators? Yeah. So I think the, the good thing with Europe is that there is a clear turning point, which is a single market. You know, once we have the Maastricht Treaty and we agree we're going to have a single market, so free flows of goods and services and people and capital inside the EU. Then once you have the single market, then it sort of makes sense to have a single regulator. 
Now, you don't have a singulator for everything, of course, because uh, you, this is this idea of subsidiarity where local questions are, local issues are treated locally. But if you have cross-border merger, for instance, well, we need a cross-border regulator, obviously. Um, so that, that created the need to think about how you build EU-level institutions, that is, that are supranational. And um, the timing is very clear because that happens in the mid-90s. So we know where to look for evidence if there's a change. You know, when these things are built in the late 90s, they start to really operate in the 2000s. So that's you know, it clearly defines a window where you think if something is unchanged, it's going to be in that window. Um, and then, so that's like the what, the when, and then the why, that's the game theory. There are two ways to think about the EU. The naive way would be to think of, well, it's a collection of members, so therefore the outcome is going to be the average of the member's outcome. So yeah. take any policy, any thing you can, you might care about. And if I look at the EU level, I'm going to see an average of what I see at the national level. And it's plausible if, if you don't think too, too hard about it. It's kind of the plausible way to at least start. Or, and, or uh, a reduction to the least common denominator, right? So it might not even yeah. be the average. It might be the, the least common denominator or something like this. Yeah. Uh, well, we, which it is in some cases. We, if, if, if they decide not to share the competency, Ah. Like for, for taxes, for instance, yes. you might have that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but my point, uh, then you say, well, but that actually is not, is not going to be the outcome because uh, that would be a very naive prediction without understanding the strategic dimension. So the way to think about it is if you're going to have a core, a shared competency, that means that the, it's very concrete. It means the countries are giving up their sovereignty. Like they are literally telling uh, themselves and their citizens, somebody else is going to make the decision for you, hmm. right? So the, 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 the merger between Alstom and Siemens, German uh, Siemens, the G German manufacturing firms, train, train and train tracks, equipment, and uh, Alstom, the same in France, they wanted to merge. That's a cross-border merger. It was blocked by the EU, you know? So that's where the decision was made. So clearly there, there was no decision made either by Germany or by France. So it's, it's a big, it's like a real, you just change the sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Now the question is in that world, how are you going to think about this EU level institution? And it's obvious you're going to start thinking about it that way, that you are not going to, to perceive and design and think about this institution the same way you would do it for your national level. Um, at the national level, especially in continental Europe, politicians, policymakers like to have control over what's going on. So they, they don't like the idea of arm's length in the branch regulators. They want regulators where they can influence them, decide on industrial policy, decide who gets merged with whom and all of that. And that's the natural state of the EU. That was a natural state of the EU 20 or 30 years ago. That's where we came from. Um, some countries more extreme than others. Of course, the UK was clearly uh, not much less so. France very much so because we had this long tradition of the state intervening in the economy and deciding everything, okay? And then everything in between, right? That was like the, the state of the EU for each country 30 years ago. But when these countries sit around the table and decide to do something for all of us together, then they realize the game is completely different because now you're not so much interested in, in being able to influence the regulator, although it would be nice if you could, hmm. but you're very worried about the other countries teaming up against you. Yeah. And uh, so in other words, the French uh, are not so much thinking, well, we don't want, we want the EU institutions to be uh, not too independent so that we can influence them. They are thinking, well, if the EU institutions are not very independent, then the Germans are going to decide everything for everybody. And <laughs> yeah. the Germans thinks the French are going to do the same. Yeah. And, and then that's even more true for the smaller countries. Because think about it, like, as a rich, small country, take, say, the Netherlands, you know, strongly independent uh, country, very rich, very uh, technically advanced, uh, but not huge in terms of size. Why? I mean, you, would you join a union where you know that the referee could be bullied by the two big players? No, you wouldn't. No, so if you're going to join that, you're going you're gonna to insist on the fact that the referee has to be independent. And so that's why we created the most independent referee in the world, even though it came from, see the paradox is the people who by their own individual historical traditions were the furthest away from free market, free regulators, independent regulators. This collection created the most free market independent regulator in the world. 
because they were the worried about everyone else. Yeah, that's that's the concept of the Nash equilibrium. So I think I'm, that's pretty much that's the same exact reason that the ECB is designed the way it is. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. So well, and I'm pretty sure every time we're going to do it at the EU level, every time we decide to have a shared competency. Uh, we would do it that way. So take taxes, for instance. So right now, taxes are clearly at the national level. Okay, and it was a deliberate choice. We did, countries did not want the EU to dictate the taxes. So it's completely outside the range of what the EU can do. And it's probably going to stay like that for a while, or even maybe forever, I don't know. So that's for sure. But the only thing I want to make clear is if we were at some point to make taxes an EU level competency, then I can guarantee that this institution would be the most independent in the world, for mm. sure. I think it's likely we're not going to do it, but yeah. if we were to do it, for sure we would do it that way. Well, it's interesting. I mean, another paradox of that, and I find the argument convincing, is that it's the lack of political unity in the EU that has really meant that that's the bulwark against regulatory capture. It's each of, it, it, it's, it's, if you had political unity, a common political market, so, so to speak, yeah. The, the individual incentives for that independent regulator would disappear. Totally. I think it's true. Yeah, absolutely right. Because then you would not, in that case, you wouldn't worry so much about the other. There would not be no meaning in saying the other country is going to take over exactly. the regulator because there would be one country. Yeah. You know, yeah. The problem of if you think about the other country taking over the regulator is you think this country has its own interest for its own citizen, which are not the same as yours. Yeah. If it's one country. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to the extent that, you could, that, that the ultimate dream or an ultimate dream of the EU is cultivating a European identity to the extent that yeah. there was a, a unified a European identity and polity, then, then you would see by this yeah. argument, an erosion of the independence of the regulators. Well, that actually is a debate I, I had uh, with uh, somebody I really like also, uh, Luigi Zingales, great economist from, from Chicago. That is actually a very subtle discussion because it's the question of the persistence and logic of institutions, which is, or in other words, is there s such a thing as the DNA of an institution? And if you think there is, then the way they are born matters a lot. In other words, like we created them that the fact that we created the, the, the common market policies and the free market policies in Europe, the fact that we created them that way was contingent on the history at the time. That is for sure. Yeah. But now that they are built that way, I think that you can make the argument that they're going to remain so because uh, that's, that's built in. It's very hard to change. So even if we make progress towards political unity, um, I don't think that that would necessarily imply that we would go back. Or definitely, what is for sure is it would be extremely costly to go back. You would have to change the treaty. You would have to get unanimity. That's just that the bar is very really hard. hard. But it's but it's a but it's possible on the other hand. So that's yeah. a debate. It's essentially a question of whether uh, the the EU is going to drift down back towards a lack of competition because over time these institutions are going to get eroded and corrupt, or are we going to stay on some kind of good equilibrium well and one of the things that again i i find it a bit paradoxical is that it may be the so-called democratic deficit that that is a again a little barrier between that erosion back towards the way things were so i just wonder to what extent is the absence of the democratic ability a positive factor in the competition story um is the regulatory regime insulated by the fact that those who run it are not subject to democratic consequences of unpopular decisions at the state level? In the short term, there's some of it. I mean, again, take the, the by far the most controversial decision of the commission in terms of antitrust was Alstom versus Siemens. Um, you know, the two biggest countries lobbying very hard, putting lots of pressure to, to get the merger approved, the commission saying no, um, that was very controversial. And, it's very clear that the politicians in France and in Germany, many, a few of them at least, were very unhappy with that uh, decision. And these are elected officials. Yeah. So you could make the case that um, to the extent these people were elected, then there is a sense in which this is you know, a limit on short-term democracy in a sense. Yeah. Um, but I th the way I think about it is more like, what's the right time scale? You know, uh, and there are some cases where you, you make decisions for the long term where it is actually useful to have democracy, but not every day.
the democracy every day is is then we go back to the issue of the um, the common good and uh, you know the issue of free riding that no nobody can be organized every day to think about politics like you know people think about it when they elect people every five years you know, the only people who can be focused on it every day are the lobbyists mm. you know and mm. so if you have democracy every day that is every day you listen to you yeah. know the political pressure that's like it's like you're giving a huge advantage to the lobbyists so i think and it, maybe it's fine in some cases but there are some policies where the consequences take a long time to play out and it's super technical but i think it's much better to have elections but once in a while and in between you know some independence for the regulators i mean i i largely agree on a normative sense i think that that's probably right but i i wonder sometimes because being from the EU, uh, being from the UK, maybe this is particularly salient for me. But you see a lot of times, I think, politicians will blame the pain for higher competitive pressures on someone else. So it'll be, you know, the ubiquitous Brussels bureaucrat that did it, and 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 this blame will lead to a kind of a threat yeah, to the local popularity of the EU, and and maybe this fuels kind of anti-EU sentiment. So. It's possible, I, I, but I think scapegoating, I mean, using scapegoat is something persons always find a way to do, irrespective <laughs> of how you design institutions. So it's true. I mean, yeah, you hear all the time, like, and, and there's a, a very, very few cases where it might be justified, but the EU did, you know, maybe overstep its boundaries. That's, um, of course, that happens. Um, but by and large, uh, I think it doesn't happen. And in the case, specifically in the case of competition policy, the EU is exemplary. I mean, that they follow the rules. Is like it's transparent, rule-based. Such a huge improvement over the kind of backdoor deals that were uh, happening before in Europe. I think it's just like it's massively better. And the truth is also that the DigiComp in that specific case has become much more transparent and democratic over the years. Like they've made an effort to explain their decisions uh, to citizens, and they they, they 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 could testify in front of the parliament. I think I'm very much in favor of like anybody running the uh, big EU institutions. They have to go to in front of parliament to explain what they do every year. I think that's completely, that's, that's totally the kind of accountability. But in the short term, like, you know, when they have to make a decision, they need to have some freedom to make the technical decision. And then sure. if, if we don't like what they do, then we kick them out the next time we have an election. Sure. And all of the countries we kick them out. So it's not, yeah, yeah. Again, I think that the explanation in Europe is, as you said, a, a clearer, and and we can we can follow the argument very well. And I think the evidence that is there, and and in the U.S. case, I think it's less clear. So something happened about twenty years ago, and you know, if we look at money and politics, so one of the key kind of inflection points that people point to in the U.S. is the Citizens United ruling. But that it only started happened before that, actually. Yeah, it only happened in 2010, that ruling. So it, it was... No, it started before. Yeah, all the trends that you point to start late 90s, early 2000s. So to add a you know, brief look through, it was Bush's second election, China entering the WTO, 9-11. Who knows? I guess we, we, we can't know because we can't run the counterfactual. But do you have any leading suspects any, anyway, even if we can't kind of prove it? Yeah, so... So if you ask me what I believe today, I don't believe there is one cause in the US. I think there is a, an addition of several factors. I don't think there is one overwhelming uh, factor like in Europe. In Europe, the, it was easy because we, we literally changed the game. Like we changed the setup uh, in, and it was like a massive undertaking. Um, that did not happen in the US. So. Um, I think that uh, in the US is multiple factors, but I would argue that in my mind, at least, I would say that there are three things that seems plausible. There is a long-term effort starting in the 70s and 80s to, re to rewrite the uh, antitrust laws and implementation following, you know, some, some economic analysis, legal analysis in, the, in Chicago uh, and, and an influential book by Bork, um, The Antitrust Paradox. And then huge lobbying by a mixture of 
you know, ideological advocates, industry lobbyists, starting essentially training camps for judges. And these guys, they, they started that in the 70s and 80s. And then um, it's been, you have to give them credit for being far-sighted. Like mm. they, 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 there was a long-term project. Um, so that's, that's one. We, could, we can come back to the details, but I think there's this factor. And that's something that starts from the 1980s onwards, like a slow train. Um, there's clearly 9-11. I mean, for instance, like just obviously the airlines, you know, like you went from eight to four. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. Yep. And the beginning of this is, is 9-11. In fact, uh, probably you could argue that uh, you had eight, ma eight major artist national airlines in the U.S. in 2000. Ten years later, you had uh, four. So it's like you, this is like literally like half of them got merged. You could argue that post 9-11, uh, at least one or two mergers were justified. There would, maybe there was a perfectly reasonable case from going from eight to seven and seven to six, perhaps. But uh, at the end, the last one from five to four, that was completely insane. Um, so clearly in that thing, they played the 9-11, they played the 9-11 card and then they used that as a justification. Um, so that shock, I think was important. That shock also had political implications that were very big. So I think that's probably like it had some, um, some consequences. The third trend that one I really don't understand um, whether I should think of it as a consequence or as a cause is the polarization of the electorate. Because it seems to me that casually it looks like it's easier for lobbyists to get their way when the two parties are more polarized. In the, in the sense that, you know, if the Republicans and the Democrats agree on, you know, a few basic principles regarding free markets, then that means when you change from one, in, from one administration to the next, that much is going to change. You know, they're, they're going to disagree on many things. They're going to have different taxes, the redistribution, you know, um, that's fine. Okay, that's why we, we need politics. But free markets should be sort of like a common good that everybody agrees on. And as long as that's true, then you would think it would be hard for lobbyists to, to get their way. And, but in the world where the, the parties become so polarized and the electorate becomes so polarized that the overarching goal is to make sure that the other party gets nothing done, that you know, just defeating your opponents, preventing them from doing anything is the ultimate goal. I think it opens the door for lobbyists. These are the three factors. This goes back to your, I think, your first explanation about the kind of ideological kind of ferment around the Chicago school that then led to, as you call it, kind of training camp for judges, this approach to... But that one has been researched recently. And so yeah. this, this one we know now. I mean, like okay. people have done, there's a really good paper over there so recently where they, they actually collected all the data. So they know every single judge that was, you know, that went to these um, seminars where they are presented with new theories, quote unquote sure. theories of antitrust. And then, and then you keep track of their careers and you can show that it influences their decisions throughout sure. their careers. So people have done that research. So that, that, but, I think now we are at the yeah. point where we, we can quantify that factor. Yeah. yeah, but I think that that ties back to the polarization identity because that particular approach became uh, associated with the set of policies or identities on this polarized political spectrum that identify with Republican. So you couldn't kind of be a Republican and not buy into this kind of quasi libertarian market ideology. And therefore you get a kind of erosion of what you were describing as the kind of fundamental beliefs in open market competition that should be bipartisan. You start to get a, a bifurcation of those because one becomes identified with a single party and, and some other factor becomes identified, some regulatory factor comes identified with the Democrats. You said there are three parts, but it seems like to me that they might kind of weave into one. Well, I think the first, well, the polarization for me is a, more like a question mark. It's a hypothesis. Okay. I just don't, I don't have any, it seems plausible to me, but I don't know how to prove it. I don't have any direct research um, the 9-11, I think it's clear that it has an impact on the airlines. That's obvious. Um, I think it had a broader impact on the political debate, but I, I don't have direct proof. The first one has been quite well researched now, and it's very targeted. And it's paid for by, by 
big lobbies. Hmm. So it's pretty, you know where the money is coming from. These guys are not, you know, they are not spending money because uh, for charity. Yeah? So you know, when they when they when they spend lavishly on on judges and conferences, and it's all paid by corporate money, they don't do it because it's it's charity, right? They have something in mind that's very clear. Yeah. So I think that's kind of that's what I think is pretty strong. And also, it's very straightforward political economy. There's nothing mysterious. Like maybe the fact that it happened uh, is some, somewhat interesting, but otherwise, there's nothing surprising. It's mm. pure bread and butter political economy, exactly as you, as you would expect. Um, so I think now, to me, that's like it's still a no-brainer, well-established. Mm. Why it suddenly it became so so much more successful in the 2000s? I think that's why you need something else that that made the system like that shocked the system and opened up. Um, you know, more room for these guys to, to get their way. Um, yeah. That's where the, the, there's this huge, huge jump in the amount of lobbying spending and also campaign finance spending at the same time. Um, so I think clearly something there, I think there was this, you know, this, I don't know what's the right metaphor, but clearly like the, the conditions were ready, the conditions yeah. were set. And then you needed some kind of shock that jolted the system. And, and then maybe that's polarization. Up. Yeah, I, that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, for for a study on that, Ezra Klein has a new book on polarization that you might find interesting as far as the, mm. as the evidence. Oh, I think I saw that one. Yeah. So just on the states, I mean, it's interesting. One thing that is being talked about a lot is a, a rise of kind of quasi uh, or or a new movement towards state power, and and a kind of decentralization away from Washington, and and this has perhaps been accelerated by the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. um, do you think you could see something that would emerge similar to what Europe emerged, the same dynamic that would want to have an independent regulator if the states became more competitive as independent entities? Um, yeah, but the tricky part is in many, in some cases, the states have a bad, um, I mean, historically, the feds have been tougher as a regulator. Let's take, uh, take finance, for instance like the in banking regulation the federal regulators are better more competent more independent and tougher than the state regulator who are much like to to be captured by their okay. local banks so i think um you know historically at least uh, there was i think it was good to have both um and then now in recent years i think what happened is that uh, the accountability issue has become much more dominant and uh, and there's a lack of accountability in Washington that is not there to the same extent at the state level, um, and um, so maybe that's the hope. Um, maybe some pragmatic too. I think like the polarization definitely suggests that states could be uh, more useful because the what we know is the more local the politics is, the the more pragmatic it is, mm. and so you know. Uh, even though you might think it, it's impossible to get agreement between the two parties in Washington, you know, at the state level, there are still many states where Republican and Democrats can work together relatively efficiently. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the main reason. Now, the fact that the, the states are specific on the issue of competition, uh, the fact that the states are somewhat leading the way, that's kind of interesting, actually. Um, it's... Uh, it's not, it's at the same time a bad sign because it's really a sign of how dysfunctional Washington has become. But also historically, it's not so uncommon. Like some of the big cases have always involved the state uh, attorney generals bending together uh, to push for the case. So the, if you look at the, the recent cases on, on Google and Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook, the state's AGs, uh, playing a key role. And that probably is a good thing. Okay. Let's kind of wrap up the discussion because you've been extremely generous with your time and I don't want to take more than I asked for. But if we could just take a couple minutes to talk about the big tech companies in the US because in some ways mm -hmm. they're, they don't fit nicely in some ways to the kind of argument that you put forward. And I guess, do you see that they're all different, but are they Walmarts or are they Verizons? Or are they Walmarts becoming Verizons? Yeah, they are Walmart becoming Verizons. Okay. I mean, all of them have been amazingly innovative and, uh, and they got there by being, by being just very good. 
and providing really good services. I think there's no question about that. Because all of them were born in industries that were very competitive. So to get to get to where they are today, they had to win against steep competition by being yeah. smarter yeah. and tougher. Um, and typically also funded by people who are bullies and don't mind fighting every day. But that's part of being an entrepreneur. So I, I think to me that's the way they got there is clearly uh, pretty good. So like that's the Walmart story. The problem is how they, it's what they are today. The way they were 10, 10 or 15 years ago is one thing. The way they are today, that's the issue. First of all, over the past 10 years, very little innovation has come from these guys that is actually useful. Um, you know, all the big ideas uh, came at the time where these firms were more innovative when they were the back against the wall. I mean, Apple is the perfect example. Apple always had its best ideas through innovation when it was the underdog. Yeah. You know? uh, and uh, the iPhone, of course, is the last one in the series, but that, you know, that came when Jobs came back and it was like, okay, the company is way behind Microsoft and it's just tiny and not very successful. So either we're going to do something amazing or we're going to go bust. You know? um, and that's why they came up with the iPhone. Yeah. Since then, yeah, it's a great, great company, but it's not like the same level of innovation. And I think they are, so, so today they are more like Verizon, many of them. Um, so after that, I think they're all different. So you, you, yeah. you want to distinguish the, the different cases. But the, the hearings the last week were pretty interesting in that case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and it showed the differences. I mean, Facebook, the, the emails that were revealed from Zuckerberg look like absolutely the behavior of a monopolist. Um, yeah. But I, it's, it's interesting to me, I, I, it seems, and again, we get back to institutions because if you look at the Federal Trade Commission, a bit at the heart of a lot of their antitrust regulation, at least since the 60s, was this idea of consumer harm. Yeah. And, and this is largely, as, as I understand it, been measured through price increases that could be measured after uh, consolidation markets. And because Facebook and Instagram and things like this, they offer their services for free, it's been hard to, it's been difficult at least to prove that they've been harming consumers, at least in this regulatory framework. Can you, can you think of a framework or, or measurement that would be more appropriate them, to them than consumer harm? Um, there is uh, two layers to that debate. One is whether the consumer welfare is still the right standard. And mm. I think the answer is yes. And then the third question is, what is the right way to measure consumer welfare? And that's where the complication is. Okay. Um, so consumer welfare depends on the prices today, the prices tomorrow, and the variety of choices the day after. Um, so if you take all of that into account, then I think you get a complete picture. And um, so, I think the narrow interpretation of consumer welfare, that's one of the outcome of the Chicago school. That one is misleading, but we know it's misleading. That, that, there's mm -hmm. nothing so theoretically straightforward that, that you can't just equate consumer welfare with short-term price changes. Um, but in practice, sometimes to implement it, you need to be able to measure stuff. And that's where it gets, it gets potentially complicated. Um, now on the price side, that argument is a little bit also, misleading in the sense that it's not new that you have two-sided platforms where on one side the price is zero you know when you get a credit card you don't pay for it right in the u.s specifically you know yet people want to give you a credit card um and then how do they make money well they charge people who forget to pay their balance on time um okay and they uh, charge the, the the payment processing so they don't you don't see the price Right. Because on your side, the price is zero, but the merchants, if you go to buy stuff at the grocery store here um, or any uh, retail uh, merchant, they're going to pay two or three percent fees on your credit card transaction. Yeah. Uh, now, that's clearly a tax on, the, on, the, on that transaction. The fact that it looks like the, the other spot is paying the tax, that's just an accounting trick. Sure. You know? um, and so, the, so in two-sided platforms, that is, um, what we mean two-sided platform is like it's a it's a business where the you have interactions, you have customers on both sides. Okay, so the typical one would be a credit card company where you have me with my card in my wallet, and then 
the merchants, all the retailers who have machines to clear the transactions. Okay, so it's like a, and the, the credit card companies and the bank and the clearing system in the middle is a platform where, where two sides meet and transact. Um, so it's very often the case that in two-sided platform, it's, it's the best strategy is to have zero price on one side because you attract customer that way and you charge the other side, the less elastic side to make your money. But that's yeah. conceptually, that's not, that's not new. Okay. We've had that before. Now, Facebook and Google do it like that. They have, it's a two-sided platform and they charge the advertising side and they charge zero to the consumer because it's the, the more elastic side you want to attract. Yeah. So the consumer perceives your price the same way you would say, I perceive your price on my credit card, but everybody understands that's not true. Yeah. That is exactly the same. Uh, I don't think there's nothing new there. The difference, of course, is that these guys are very good at hiding prices. And so we don't know how, how much they charge on the other side. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the issue. Well, and, and I guess we pay with our data, right? We pay with our spending patterns and habits and things like this. Yeah, well, the, the, that brings the privacy issue, which is uh, in the case of Facebook, you, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's very meaningful to separate the privacy from the, the antitrust in general. Uh, because the um, thing about privacy, it's like one feature that you value. It's like the same thing. Privacy is just one of the features that you value as a consumer. So it's like the quality of the product. And then every monopolist is going to charge higher prices and, and degrade quality. That's true in general, and it's true in particular in that case where as soon as Facebook achieved its monopoly, it started to degrade the quality of its privacy policies, which were actually not that bad before. Mm. You know, Facebook 15 years ago was a pretty decent place to, to keep uh, your, your thing private. Well, Thomas, it's been a magnificent conversation. I learned so much by reading your book and the conversation we've had today elucidated so much more. So thank you very much. My last question for you is other than The Great Reversal, which everyone should read because it's fantastic, um, can you give some advice to something you have read in the last year which you think other people should read? Uh, and by should, I couldn't be for fun or information or education. Have you read anything lately that you recommend? Yes. So I'm, I'm reading, I'm in the middle of a book called Black Mirror. It's the history of the, of the Snowden case, ah, uh, Edward okay. Snowden uh, leak. But it's told by um, a brilliant uh, journalist from the Washington Post who did all the research and he's been working in this the field of um, privacy, surveillance, um, data protection, you know, uh, espionage over the past 25 years. So he uses the Snowden case. He's the guy who that Snowden gave the data to. Ah, okay, okay. Um, but he's... The book is more than that because it tells you the whole story of how the apparatus of uh, surveillance by state has changed over time and what it means. It's very interesting. It's Sounds really fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.